This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. My name is Troy Swanson. I'm the department chair of the library, and I'm going to moderate today's panel. This is part of our One Book, One College series on Roxana Sabari's uh, Between Two Worlds. We're looking at journalism as one of the themes, because she was a journalist, so we're, we're wandering away from the book a little bit, talking about the broader theme. Uh, you know, as a librarian, I'm interested in information, and the heart, and the, like the ground game of information is journalism, and that's what the people that point our attention in directions on what's important, what impacts our lives, and that filters into research, and it filters into education, it filters into what we do. So I have my own personal interest in doing this. So that's why we're holding this event, and I've brought together uh, some people that I think have great perspectives uh, to add. So let me introduce our panel members. To my left is the world-renowned Jeremy Shermack, who is one of our faculty members, teaches uh, uh, journalism and writing here at Moraine Valley. Uh, Jeremy has studied journalism at Indiana. He's been a correspondent at the South Bend uh, Tribune, make sure I get that right, and a photographer and correspondent at the Harper County News, which he tells me is a weekly and it is as local as journalism gets. All right. Uh, to my right is Rob Hart. He's the morning uh, morning anchor, morning guy for FM News. It's uh, 101.1. Uh, he was at WGN, and he studied communications at Marquette. We're really happy that uh, he made the trip out, bought traffic and parking to come and see us. Uh, to his right is Dan Lambert. Dan is the editor at the Palos Patch. So uh, I know Dan from uh, him covering many of our events, and he's around campus and uh, does a good job. He has a master's from uh, Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern. So I want to thank all these guys for coming out and uh, talking to us. So you know, let me just set up our topic quickly, and then you, we'll let them dive in. You know, obviously in the First Amendment of our Constitution, the, the freedom of press is protected, and, and there's the idea that our society is held that an educated citizenry requires information, requires news, and requires freedom for us to share that, to share ideas. Um, in some ways, we live in the best of times. News and information is as cheap as it's ever been for those of us that consume, consume knowledge, right? Open up your phone, go to the web, it's everywhere. Uh, we've witnessed revolutions around uh, the world and protests in our streets that are largely funded by, or, or propelled by, maybe not funded by, propelled by the idea of quickly exchanging information, right? So the best of times, but also the worst of times as we see newsrooms across the country in our major newspapers being cut and journalists being laid off. Um, in 2008, the Chicago Tribune filed for bankruptcy, and in 2009, so did the Sun-Times. Uh, the Sun-Times, I, I believe, doesn't even print its own paper now, but outsources a lot of it through the Tribune, which mm -hmm. is interesting. Uh, locally, we've seen the Southtown and the Star merge into one, into one paper, which means, in some ways, consolidation of staff and less people covering our area. Uh, so again, the worst of times, as it's harder to be a journalist and there's more weight put on the people that are left standing. So um, the question that the idea that I think is true is that we still need news. News is not dying, but the models for making news happen are going away and withering away. And I wonder if we should be worried about that. So my just to get get the ball rolling, I'll jump in here. Is the the essential problem I think we face is that there's an abundance of media outlets. But that does not translate into an abundance of reporting. 
In many communities, there are now more outlets, but less local accountability due to this appointing, uh, reporting. So I want to ask our panel members, whoever wants to jump in, is this true and should we be worried? I would say there's, a, <clears throat> there's an information craving now because so much is available. We want more and more and more, and we're looking for as many different sources as we can get. Uh, sometimes that issue, and, and Troy, you and I have talked about this with classes and, and information literacy, you know, know your source, who's writing it, what, what are their credentials. So sometimes you run into those issues where it's so easy to put information out there these days that you get those folks who may not be trained or worse yet, maybe fabricating information or <clears throat> not have the credentials to be putting information out there. Um, so that's certainly one of the, the downfalls of this information age. Yeah, I, I agree. I think as kind of um, technology has become cheaper and easier for people to use, the walls of entry into journalism have really broken down. So before you needed to kind of, you know, work for a, a named media outlet or um, kind of a, a legacy organization to have an audience, whereas now, um, you know, anybody with a computer and an Internet connection can um, you know, spread information. Um, and it's, I think it is... Um, dangerous in some ways, but I really don't see it as kind of a um, a major negative. I think um, kind of the democratization of information and um, kind of allowing you know as many people as possible to share views and information in the long run is beneficial. Yeah, I think journalism is fine. It's uh, making money off of journalism, which is uh, really the uh, the big question mark. And the person who can figure that out is going to be the mogul of the next 60 or 70 years. And we're in one of those transition periods, which it's excitement, exciting to read about a transitionary period in a history book because you can turn the page and find out what happens next, but we don't have that luxury. And uh, an event that I think illustrates our hunger for information and how new media and social media really broke the story is think back to last May uh, when we found out that the Navy SEALs had killed Osama bin Laden. There was some uh, advance notice from the White House, and that's the traditional way the White House tells the networks, be ready because we're going to have a statement from the Oval Office or a statement from the East Room, so be ready to cut into regular programming, and the networks have to grant that request because, after all, it's the White House. And if this happened five years ago, there'd be a lot of speculation, a lot of talking, a lot of people talking to sources uh, as part of the mainstream media, the, the Post, the New York Times, CNN, NBC, ABC, CBS, Fox. They'd all be trying to, their people would be calling in the government trying to get the story. You know who broke the Osama bin Laden story? You know how we all found out that bin Laden had died? It wasn't mainstream media. It was a guy by the name of Carl Urban, who was the former chief of staff to Don Rumsfeld, the former secretary of defense, who tweeted, it looks like we got bin Laden. Hot damn. <laughs> and that's how the story got out there. And then we found out later on, there was a live play-by-play -play of how that raid occurred, also on Twitter. It was some guy who lived down the street from the bin Laden compound who said... All these helicopters just landed. They woke me up in the middle of the night. I don't know what's going on. It happened in real time. And this is stuff that would have been classified top secret for decades, and, and we found out in real time thanks to Twitter. Are those guys making money off of their exploits? No. But 
they got the information out there. So really, I think uh, when, when you talk about uh, trying to move the ball forward in journalism in this era where there's such an incredible hunger, you do need a lot of people on the, on the content side who simply have a love of the game. You're not going into it to be rich, but you just enjoy being part of the process. Right. Uh, so a, a few things uh, from those comments. I love the idea of the democratization of information. The idea of what is a named media outlet, I think, maybe is something to talk about. And, of course, the, the challenge is making, making money and making it sustainable. So with the, the Bin Laden example, as the tweets are breaking news, does this happen locally? So maybe I'll throw that question out there. Is, is, there, is there a guy in the audience at the local school board meeting, zoning board meeting, tweeting about the new McDonald's sign that's going up? Uh, I don't think yet. Um, maybe kind of on a uh, region, you know, maybe in the city of Chicago that kind of exists where there's, you know, many more people involved in kind of that government entity. When you're talking about a town of 10,000 people, um, I think we're not quite there yet. But at the same time, um, I can't, I cover the Payless area, so it's three towns. I can't be everywhere at once. I can't go to every meeting. I can't go to every event. And um, kind of the next step of what we do is trying to harness the people who are going to those things and the people who are going to, to those events to submit their own information and upload their own photos and, you know, share their own expertise on a particular topic. So it's, you know, widening, widening the playing field so it's not kind of a, a top-down process where, you know, I'm the reporter, I'm the editor, and I'm imparting my knowledge of what happened. And it's, that kind of process is kind of flipped now where it's, you know, all these people have, you know, the shared experience or have this, you know, set of information to share. Now it's my job to figure out how to take that and how to harness that knowledge and share it with kind of a wider audience. So I think the days of, you know, journalists thinking of themselves as kind of the, the gatekeeper to information have long gone. And I think that's a really positive development. Um, and it's kind of, you know, the next step in the field is figuring out how to, you know, harness whatever information is already out there in whatever form it is and still telling an accurate, you know, story and verifying facts using, you know, as many avenues of information as possible. I, I agree with that, Dan. This idea of harnessing the information where it comes from, you know, what we have with Twitter is an opportunity to not only write these brief 140 character tweets to give us the information. We also have portability with that. You can use it on your phone. You know, you can be in, you can be places. And one thing that I, I think about when I think of Twitter, this is something that was discussed at a journalism education conference I was at in St. Louis this past summer, was journalists using Twitter as, as what they call the listening device. Going out and finding what's, what people are talking about, what's trending. Uh, that's going to be a real key, I think, right now and certainly in the future. So if there is a tweet out there about that city council meeting or that school board meeting, you know, it would probably be wise for a local news outlet to maybe be searching for something, you know, some a hashtag or one of those terms to find out, hey, what's going on? What are people saying? And maybe listening to their audience a little bit more. I think that's something that newspapers will start needing, will need to do more of uh, to, I guess, turn this around. That was something that, because uh, I came to, I used to work at the Tribune Company, and uh, that was something that was definitely part of the news thought process. Um, what were 
the top ten most viewed stories at chicagotribune.com, and they kind of catered news coverage and how they put the front page together around that. And that's why it led to some rather non-traditional choices. And if you were, uh, there are a lot of members of the Capital J journalism community from out of town looking at this and saying this is this is horrible how can you do it well that's what people that's what people like that's what people are interested in you got to reflect their tastes you can't take it too far and we learned this the hard way when we launched uh, FM news back in August we kind of uh, tailored our newscasts to what uh, was being reflected in Google trends or what was being reflected uh, in Twitter trends and the next thing you know, you're doing like 10 stories on the Kardashians, which <laughs> is a very interesting subject to a very small group of people, but to the larger world that wants to tune into a news station ostensibly to get news, you hear people talking about reality TV all the time. It's like, well, this is stupid, and, and leave. So you have to consider it, but don't be a, a slave to what's trending on Twitter or what's what's trending on Google because it, especially the people who are doing Google searches in the middle of the night when we came in to, to work strange people <laughs> that, that was another another thing to worry about is that there were some odd people up in the middle of the night looking for stuff on Google and that kind of skewed our thought process a bit so maybe this is a good transition into hearing a little bit about uh, where these guys are coming from and what they do um, maybe Rob you can continue and just tell us what um, FM News is about and why it's noteworthy and uh, the, the move to uh, FM radio. Well, first off, if uh, any of you listen to Q101, I'm sorry. And uh, I grew up listening to it, too. And it was weird showing up at the radio station uh, the day after the format went away and looking at all of these posters for concerts and, and shows that they were promoting when I was in high school. And here we are. It's like, whoa, we're the... This is it, and we're, 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 we're taking it away. So I apologize for that, and uh, it does live on as an Internet app. Um, look for it on Android and uh, on your iPhone. But what we're doing is uh, it's, it's, it's the very first all-news radio station in Chicago since uh, WMAQ signed off in 2000. So for the last 11 years, the city's only had... Uh, one fully staffed 24-hour-a-day all-news radio station, and then you've had some news talk stations that do news uh, at the top or bottom of the hour. And what we were trying to do is have a radio station that reflects the information, the way people consume information today. And we do live in an on-demand society, and it's not... People don't tailor their listening habits to... Well, I have to be listening at 8 o'clock exactly because that is when the top of the hour newscast begins and I have to listen to it and then turn off the car at 8.10 and then go into work. That doesn't happen anymore. I think people can get news right now from any source from this thing. And this, and you talk about other radio stations as being your competition. Yeah, you're, you're judged by how WBBM is doing or you're judged by how uh, BEZ is doing or how WGN is doing. But really, when it comes to, to fighting for the listener's attention, you're fighting this thing. And you can get a full update of local news while you're stopped at a red light. And we have to find a way to pull people away from that and say the content that we have on the radio station is so worthwhile and so good, you're going to be missing something 
if, uh, if if you're just going to get the, the news rundown from your phone. And that is a challenge, that, and there's no easy answer to that. I mean, that's something we're still trying to figure out, and we'll be trying to figure it out 10 years from now. And also, we have a, a significant web presence, too. I mean, you got to consider uh, the website, social media, Twitter, on par with having the signal on top of the Hancock building. And 15 years from now, the, the streaming feed on the website may be more valuable than the over-the-air FM signal. So you, is there planning going on for that day? I mean, are you just that's talk down the road? I'll tell you what, the, the, planning, the, the planning for that day is already here. You have the FM 101 app. Who needs a radio anymore? It's streamed over your cell phone. I mean, you talk about uh, trying to, to beat the news feed that's... Uh, that's being piped up, you know, out of the Tribune or something like that that you can read on your phone. You can just, you can take this anywhere. You can listen to it in Orlando if you wanted to. And I think that's that's the, the way it's going, that all, all broadcasting is not going to be over traditional AM or FM or even TV. It's all going to be done through cell phone towers, and you can take it anywhere and listen to it whenever you want. So... Then maybe we'll go down and ask Dan. So a shift out of the the radio world. Tell us about the patch. Sure. Maybe tell us about what you what you do and what is the life of the patch reporter. Sure. Um, I guess it, it would be helpful to kind of, uh, kind of give the brief um, kind of creation story of how patch came to be in the first place. Um, it's interesting in the fact that a lot of news organizations um, are you know newspaper companies or radio companies or television companies, whereas we are we were started as an online company, so we're not beholden to any, you know, old ways of doing things and old models of how things should work. Um, it's an AOL-owned company. Um, it was started about three and a half years ago by um, now the uh, CEO of AOL, but then a ex recent executive of Google who went online looking for volunteer opportunities in his town and couldn't find a single place where all those were you know, put together. You had to hunt around a, you know, every organization's website to find a list of places where you can volunteer in your town. And from that, you know, seed of an idea, it, it expanded into a kind of a, a virtual town square where you can find, you know, professionally reported news by journalists who are embedded in your community, but you can also find, you know, a really comprehensive events calendar. There's a business directory, so every single business, school, government office, church in town has its own page on the website, so it gives um, you know, local community organizations and businesses who might not have their own website a, a space online. Um, you know, there's also volunteer opportunities, um, classifieds, people can post you know, their own announcements. So um, it's, the idea is for it to be a completely interactive space where the community can not only go to consume news, but can go to share news as well. Um, it's grown rapidly in the, la in the last year and a half. Um, when I started, the Payless patch launched in August of 2010. I was 102nd patch site to launch. Um, as of today, I think there's 865 sites across the country in something like 16 different states. So it's really um, kind of grown really quickly because there was a, a void in the marketplace of um, a local online news and information organization. This space is normally, you know, taken up by community weeklies who, um, you know, could only run six stories a week and had no, you know, real web presence. And we felt there's really an opportunity to kind of, you know, 
give people a place where they can go to get information about their town, which is oftentimes the news that affects their lives um, most directly. So I oversee, um, every site has a, a local editor. Um, we oversee um, a few freelancers. Um, we also have some you know, full-time staff who floats between the sites. So I cover everything from um, you know, local village councils, um, you know, government finance, school boards, um, community events, kind of anything that's going on in that town. Um, but in addition to just covering it, I'm also um, trying to get people to share news themselves. So there's a blogging platform on the site. So, you know, the local Boy Scout troop can have their own blog where they could share their own information about what's going on. People can go on there and post pictures. You know, the school district, instead of us sending a reporter to you know, a school assembly, the school district could send those photos in and post those to the site themselves, bring reporters up to, you know, um, you know, write Freedom of Information Act requests for the fire district's finances so we can kind of really explore an issue that needs to be explored. So, you know, we see ourselves as not only community reporters, but also as um, community kind of, I don't know, aggregators or, you know, sharing news that's going on directly from, you know, the people who live in that town themselves. Um, it's, you know, it's a, you know, really interesting job because I get to do everything. I'm writing, I'm taking pictures, I'm, I'm editing, I'm shooting video and posting video, I'm using social media to get breaking news out right away. So it's kind of a, a really nice example of, you know, the changing landscape of what a journalist is and that you kind of have to do a little bit of everything. And Dan, how many communities then does the Palos Patch cover? We cover three. We cover three. Palos Heights, okay. Hills, and Park. Um, there's about thir 12 sites in the south suburbs, so from, you know, Hoquan, Evergreen, Orland, Tinley. Um, you know, each community has their own specific site. Okay. Great. Uh, so let me ask Jeremy, you know, I heard, uh, so this is absolute rumor that I'm about to share, un un uh, unconfirmed, but I was told that the reporters for the Herald, which is the paper for the western, northwest suburbs, cover about 50 communities, 40 communities. And I don't know if that's true, so take that for what you will, but I know that people are cutting, cutting reporters. Maybe I can ask you to just talk a little bit about, so the, the newspapers that we've had with us for years that we've come to trust, that nameplate. You know, where are they in all of this, and, and especially with local coverage? Yeah, <clears throat> that number one has surprised me with the Herald at all. It's, it's been happening across the country. Uh, what we've seen with newspapers, you know, I would say in the last, certainly the last 10, 15 years, is really kind of a perfect storm uh, occurring to that industry. Uh, you know, you've had the digital age, quite obviously, and that impacted the industry, you know, what, what a lot of people say, what, what happened to newspapers as well, people started getting their information online, and that's, that's, True, you know, there's more to it. But if you think about what a newspaper used to and in some ways still provides, um, quite obviously news stories. You know, I'd open up a, a, to look at a news story. Well, I can go online and get that, or I can watch CNN and get that now, or I can get it on my phone. Uh, you know, I'm a big sports fan. I'd flip to the sports page. By the next day, that's old news, right? You know, few people go and say, hey, what did the Bears do yesterday? Right in the Monday paper, that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, classified ads, which were a major part of revenue, uh, some more than others for newspapers, where do you think those went? Craigslist, because it's free, right? Uh, personal ads, where'd those go? 
eHarmony, Match, uh, coupons. People used to, you know, and there's still coupons in the Sunday paper, but you used to see the flyers and the coupons. You know, Macy's doesn't have to put a flyer in the Tribune anymore. They'll just email you a coupon. So that brought readership down. People started to see that there wasn't the gain that used to be there for having a newspaper come to their home on a daily basis. Now, many people still get the Sunday paper only, but you know that wasn't that wasn't the model for the newspapers. So the digital age really kind of picked apart that what newspapers held in their hand for so long. And on the other side of it, newspapers really were were slow to get in the game as far as as digital uh, the digital world goes. Uh, I think there's some stubbornness. Uh, Rob mentioned earlier, kind of journalism with a capital J. You know, there's the old kind of the old guard that doesn't want that says, you know, hey, you know, we don't want to go by these trends that people are viewing online. You know, we want to find the stories ourselves. We don't want to count on citizens to do that when that's really what's going to help them survive. And I think now they're just starting to see that. Uh, so there was a little stubbornness from the reporters all the way up to the top, in my opinion, uh, that really hurt the newspaper business. Uh, and the business model itself. Uh, you know, it, a lot of these papers were owned by one company. You see this in, you know, in this area here, the Tribune uh, filed for bankruptcy. Uh, the Sun-Times Media Group runs the Sun-Times, uh, you know, also have bankruptcy. And in 2009 alone, the Sun-Times closed 12 local papers here, all right, that were in towns like Mount Prospect, uh, you know, just thinking off the top of my head, Schaumburg, those areas. So those, those local papers that may not have been that big but did have some kind of following were cut because they needed to support the bottom line. So newspapers weren't reinvent, reinvesting in the technology uh, and weren't all that interested when it was starting to grow. And that hurt them. And I think just now they're starting to catch up a little bit. I mean, even a newspaper website isn't all that techno technologically sound, I think. You know, if you do a search on a website, I never really have that much success finding an article on a Tribune, you know, that direct site. They still your do better. Think, yes, go to your library. Shameless plug. Uh, but, you know they need to do work on that and they're just getting up to speed with Twitter now and you know so instead of viewing these things as threats what they're starting to do is view them as allies and recreating that business model but it's going to take time and there certainly has been a lot of cuts and uh, to piggyback on your point there you, a lot of these newspaper companies are trying to undo the last 20 years of of buyouts and acquisitions yeah. I mean think back to the you know, we talk about the glory days of newspapers or the glory days of big legacy media. Uh, newspapers and radio stations were usually owned by one guy, the big businessman in town, who was civic-minded and thought, I'm just going to invest in this radio station or this newspaper. And if it makes a, if the profit margin is just 3 or 4%, then you know what? I'm a happy guy. I'm a wealthy man. And everything is going to be great. I mean, think, you know, this, the, the Tribune at one time was owned by Colonel Robert McCormick. I mean, he was, and he was definitely an empire builder. He was definitely a mogul. But he also saw the newspaper as a citizen, not only of Chicago, but of Illinois. The Sun-Times was owned by the Field family, as in Marshall Fields. They were making their money in other places. And then the Tribune Company, years, decades after McCormick died, decided that it was going to become a big player in media. It bought the Los Angeles Times. It bought TV stations. 
for much more than they were worth, and then the economy cratered. And you're still trying to pay off debt that you uh, that you took on to buy these properties at good time prices, and the revenue stream is bad time revenue. And you got to find some way to make those two things come together, and that's why you have the wave of sell-offs, the journalists being let go, and things like that. So a lot of these big companies are still trying to undo what they did in the 80s and 90s during the go-go era, and uh, it, it could take them a long time. Audience survey. How many people have Twitter accounts? Just raise your hand. How many people are on Facebook? Okay. How many people get news from Twitter? Yeah, all right. How many people get news from Facebook? How many people get news from radio? Thank you. Right. Non-scientific. <laughs> yeah, right. Television? A few more. All right, interesting. Nothing dominant. Just How one. How many get four newspapers a day? How many get four newspapers a day? <laughs> Our lone rebel. <laughs> question? Yeah, absolutely. Good. Good question. So just in case, so everyone, I'll make sure I'll, I'll paraphrase for people that maybe didn't hear that. Make sure I get this right. Question was for the panel members: What do they feel about government efforts to censor uh, the internet, and that, and Twitter, and even Google's willingness at times to cooperate and and remove content or stop usage? And referring maybe to SOPA and uh, FIFO that had a lot of press a few weeks ago, perhaps. And active. And active. Yep. And taken down the file sharing site that was out of uh, Hong Kong recently. Mm -hmm. Comments? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, the company I work for came out against SOPA and PIPA, and it was, um, I think the thing you have to remember that it oftentimes we forget is that at the end of the day, companies are owned by corporations whose goal it is to make money. So, yes, while Google and Twitter are, you know, great, amazing outlets where, um, you know, people are sharing information and, you know, spreading news, and you saw it during... Um, you know, the Arab uprisings and um, kind of the way people were able to use Twitter to kind of really harness a movement. Um, at the end of the day, Twitter probably would rather make money than be, you know, a nonprofit that facilitates, um, you know, that type of, you know, work. So it, it's, it's kind of a, a really difficult balance where there's always that, you know, push and pull between you know, remaining free and open and, you know, open to kind of sharing ideas, but at the same time being a, comp uh, being a corporation that, you know, wants to make money. So, um, you know, it's, it's a difficult balance. I mean, as a reporter, it's, you know, we, you know, freedom of the press and freedom of expression is, you know, paramount to what we do, and we can't do our job if, you know, those rights aren't protected. Um, but at the same time, it's, you know, the media, for the most part, is still very much corporately owned and, and run. You want the short answer? They don't like it. Um, the, the, the person who, uh, who is the CEO of, 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 of where I work, uh, not, a, not a big fan uh, of, of any, anything like that. And that is, why, that is why good media outlets have lawyers, and that is why great media outlets have lawyers who take your side every time. So they, they know how media law works, and they will stick up for you at, uh, at, at 
every twist and turn if you do find yourself on the wrong side. Obviously, you want, you know, if, if you, 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 you trade in copyrighted material, you, I mean, obviously, if you, stuff you create has your copyright, you want to protect it. But at the same time, you have a lot of people who have a very poor understanding of how the Internet works, trying to regulate it. And that's where SOPA comes from. And, uh, and, and thankfully, I think for all of us in this panel, thankfully, they, uh, they decided to back off of that for now. But uh, they will come back with something else, probably something as equally as restrictive and equally as silly. And uh, once again, it will be up to uh, us to stop it. So mm -hmm. there you go. Yeah, and it it becomes a very slippery <clears throat> slope, if you will, you know, with that because we always said the the journalism and the media is kind of that fourth branch, that that watchdog, if you will, to keep the government in check. And Troy opened up with the comment about democ <clears throat> democracy, and you know, journalism is a very uh, necessary part of that. And if you get things to go through like SOPA, you know, that starts to take that away and they tend to merge and that's that's not what we want you know we don't want we don't want those to come together uh, we need it to to keep things in check yeah go ahead the question is is there a need for a healthy filter at times and has that filter been destroyed by too much openness Well, I think um, it's sometimes people learn those lessons the hard way, but I think even with SEAL Team 6, that is a pseudonym. That's not really their name, I don't, I don't believe. I think that was just the, the name that was applied to them, and we'll probably never know who they are. And uh, even with, uh, with the, the guy who was live tweeting the Bin Laden raid, he was down the street. He just heard a commotion. And um, I, I think you, I mean, uh, from, from you know, to the mainstream media side, uh, you want to make sure that if someone is is you only use the name of someone who is accused of a crime whose whose name has come out in open court in a publicly available document. But there are other th you know you, there are whistleblower laws. You, you don't want to compromise sources. You don't want to. Here's something that's been going on that uh, I, um, that's been happening recently, and this is that. The names of police officers are being leaked out in, in various cases that are are controversial in, in in a particular city or town, and there's there's a reason why you keep that a lot of media outlets keep those things that they don't release those names because emotions run high. You can look up addresses, and all of a sudden, someone is really unsafe. And those are all the things that uh, that editors and and, and writers and and the person in charge, I'll have to consider. You know, what's what, what's the what's the good and what's the harm of of releasing someone's name, especially if they're a private citizen. That's a debate everybody has. There are some people, though, who, um, for whatever motivation, feel it's it's right to put those things out there. They have their own internal debate, and often they don't see those consequences through. And and. You do you, when when you're thinking about those things. I think you do have to make sure, even if you're not even a, a, a professional mainstream media journalist, if you're if you're just doing it because you like putting information out there, you have to have that that sense of civic responsibility in your head. You know, what am I going to do if if I make this thing public and the whole world knows who this person is? Right. I think that's a good point. To to bring us bring us back to the the local issue. I mean, you know, when, earlier we kind of hinted at the idea. 
that our local governments can have people in the audience with their phones tweeting, and that's going to replace journalism. I don't think we quite said that, but that you know that was hinted at. I mean, is that real? I mean, are we going to get to that? Is that really going to happen? Are, is, are people going to be? I'm going to go to the Water Commission meeting, and I'm going to tweet about what this, what's going on. I, I don't think so. Um, I mean, from covering government meetings, it's the news is very kind of, you know, at a surface level. And, you know, anybody can go to a meeting and, you know, listen to what's going on and get kind of the, you know, basics of, you know, what was voted on and what was passed. But it's, I see it as my job to kind of, you know, push beyond that and bring it to a deeper level. You know, why, you know, what's, how did that, you know, ordinance begin and why was it put through and what were the conflicting interests, um, you know, that led to it being, being passed or, why did it fail, or what are the financial repercussions now that it has, what parties were affected. So, you know, I think that's in a, the prop, what I always saw with the problem with, you know, community newspapers and, you know, small, you know, weeklies was that there was a tendency to, you know, cover things on a very, you know, surf, superficial level. So, you know, you go to the city council meeting and report what happened at the city council meeting. That's all, you know, great, but... Which we could get from reading the meeting minutes. Or watching it on, you know, cable access TV. I mean, that's not real journalism. That's, you know, glorified stenography, really. You're sitting there reporting what happened and what people said. It's your job as a journalist to, you know, challenge people on why did you vote in that particular way. And now that this vote has passed, you know, what are the repercussions of it. So I think there's, you know, it's great that, you know, that information is there, but the journalist's job is to really kind of, you know, go beyond that. And it, it takes time to do, and I think that's why journalists will never be, you know, really replaced. You know, people have have jobs and have, you know, responsibilities outside of, um, you know, their civic interests, whereas a journalist, we get paid to spend a lot of time, you know, focusing on these issues and really exploring them in depth. And, you know, journalists, from a f professional sense, are decision makers and analysts. And if you're sitting at, you know, I'm going to steal an example you use in my class a lot, Troy, where, if, you know, if, if we were covering a uh, Moraine Valley uh, board meeting and they said, we bought a new lawnmower and the library got 100 new books, and oh, by the way, we're building a huge parking garage over next to the tennis courts, all right, you should be savvy enough as a journalist to know my headline is not going to be that new lawnmower. My headline is going to be, I know you students want to say, is the parking garage, right? That's the story. So, you know, just to kind of regurgitate what, what happened at the meeting isn't journalism, like Dan said. We could look at that in the, in, the, in the minutes of the meeting. We have to cover it. Let's dig in a little more. When's the garage going to be done? Who's going to pay for it? Uh, where is it located? You know, how many cars will it hold? So on and so forth. So, you know, there's kind of the event, and then there's the aftermath. And where the journalist comes in and they really flex their muscle, so to speak, and use their skills to get the story is in that aftermath. Talk to the board members or the council men and women or whatever it is afterwards and get that story. Uh, you know, don't just be there like everyone else and leave when you're done. Right. You know, you got to dig a little. That's, that's what's key. Well, it's get the story and be willing to put it out there. Right. right. And like, you know, I, I could go to a board meeting and maybe I don't want to tweet about it because my neighbor might get ticked off at me, right? It's like why people don't join local political causes. Because really, we're just not always that comfortable dealing with tough issues. 
So does it come down to the money? I mean, do you need people that make a living at this and are protected by an organization? Is that really what we're... That role is what we're really concerned about? I, I think at some level, perhaps, you do. Uh, you know, in a situation maybe with some of these hyperlocal sites that are going up, you know, I mean, Dan, you're the editor. You know, I'm, I'm sure things can maybe... I know a lot of content is added by the users, but I would... I'm just guessing or maybe asking, you know, you, you're ultimately the one who says, should this run or should it not? Or, you know, is this something I could take down? You know, and I would say that, you know, that person who makes those decisions should be trained, should be a professional to know, you know, what are the consequences of running a story or perhaps even what stories should or should we not run, so on and so forth. I, I still think you need someone involved in the mix. Yeah, absolutely. And I see myself as part journalist and part, you know, curator of information. So not only am I doing my own work and doing my own, you know, reporting, but I'm also taking information that other people are sharing and, you know, checking for accuracy and, you know, making sure it's balanced and all of that. So it's, you know, it's a two-way street now. So not only am I, you know, imparting information to people, but I'm also taking what people are telling me and giving me and sharing it to a wider audience. The Lone Crusader has been around as long as there's been journalism. I mean, just think back to the Revolutionary War time where you have one guy publishing a pamphlet. And you still have those people today. You still have you know, the, 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 the one local political blogger who goes to every meeting because they want to raise hell. And they do it just because they enjoy it. And, yeah, they provide a valuable service. I mean, the, this is the dirty little secret of, of what you want to call respectable journalism is that a lot of beat reporters or, or what have you kind of get their scoops or, or get leads and information from those tip sheets. And that's been the way it's, that's the case it's been going all the way back to, to you know, into the, into the 40s and 50s where these guys would publish these Washington newsletters. They'd be one-man newsmaking operations. They'd, they'd have their sources at the White House. The next thing you know, like, you know, Walter Cronkite was picking up on it because they subscribed at CBS. However, it is, you talk about the money and the protection. The money and protection are pretty nice. I mean, I, I think yeah. you would like the ability to know that you can you can make rent and and turn on the water and uh, and flush the toilet from time to time, and uh, that's something that you know being paid for your efforts uh, can allow you to have. And it's really cool. Like I mentioned, having that media lawyer stick it up for you. When I was in Milwaukee, um, I was there was some election story going on. I was getting a hard time from the city of Milwaukee. And the journal company, which owned my radio station, had this on-staff attorney. His name was Howard Kreitzer, little gray-haired man with horn-rimmed glasses and a bow tie. And he said, we're going to call Howard. And then he came racing over to City Hall, and he was like, you can't do this, 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 and this. And he solved my problem right there in front of me. I thought, this is really cool. So it's, it's nice to have that protection. It's nice to have an organization or an editor or a boss who will uh, stick up for you when you wade into some fairly uh, uh, swampy waters. So I, I really want to get to this question. I know we're going to – I want to watch time and give time for questions. But, um, I mean, the, to me, I think the, the money question is the big one, right? We don't know, Ben, if we are in agreement that at some level we need pros that are looking at this locally. I know I'm a big fan of the patch and Trib Local and, and these efforts. I really hope that they're successful. But I've done some research, and I know that AOL's not really showing numbers right now on how well the patch is doing. I know it's new and it's growing, 
but I don't think we've proven that the patch is sustainable yet. So I'd be interested to hear Dan's comments on that. And I and I think we'll equally put Rob on the spot, like the um, FM News Venture. I don't think radio is going away yet, and I see the online, but I still think there's challenges there, right? I mean, I, oh, we're I, super I successful. We're, yeah. Everybody loves us. <laughs> see, we can get these guys in trouble with their bosses. So I don't know who wants to jump in first. Yeah, so... Um, not sharing any kind of privileged information. You could find it, you know, through Google search. But AOL invested over a hundred million dollars in patch and to make it work, um, and they did that with the belief that it, it would be successful. Um, there's been a, there's kind of a, a industry of you know, online media who likes to you know, criticize each other, and there's a, media has kind of historically always had this, um, you know relationship where people like to report on other media outlets. So there's been a lot of, you know, press about will Patch be successful or is it just kind of this giant money pit for, you know, a company like AOL that's kind of might have had its heyday, you know, back in 1998 with dial-up internet. Um, so it, they think it works and, you know, they say every projection they have um, is being met and kind of every, every benchmark they set for, you know, revenue is being met. But it is a startup. It is an experiment. We're trying to do something that's never been done before. Um, I think it will work, but there's no, you know, guarantees that it will. Um, the idea was that if we scale really big, really quickly, um, it'll be easier to generate revenue. So the fact that you have 860 sites and we were the first kind of player in the game in a major way, there's an inherent advantage to that. Um, so, it, yeah, I mean, it, it remains to be, you know, seen how successful, you know, it will be. But every indication has been um, positive. I mean, if you look at my site, when it launched, there were zero ads, and now there's, you know, dozens of advertisers, most of which are, are local advertisers who are using online ads for the first time. I um, mean, the fact that there's 860 sites also opens up the market to, you know, national advertisers as well. So it's, um, you know, all the indications are good, but it's an experiment. I mean, it's, you know, trying to figure out something that has never been, you know, successfully figured out before. And as a, you know, a reporter, as someone working in the media industry, that's really exciting that you're working for a company that's trying to figure a problem or a question out as opposed to, you know, working at an organization that is like, you know, trying to hold on to its grip of what the greatness we once were and, you know, you're fearing layoffs at every turn. Um, you know, I feel like I'm working for a company that's trying to, you know, innovate and do something new and putting every possible, you know, ounce of energy and financial support into making it successful. I think my story and your story are awfully similar. Uh, the number one billing radio station in America, the radio station in the United States that makes the most money above all others, is WTOP in Washington, D.C. It is an all-news radio station. It has an ironclad grip on Washington. I mean, they are in first place, and the station that's number two in D.C. is far, far, far behind. The number one radio station in Chicago is WBBM. It's also the radio station that makes the most money. Uh, for two reasons. One, it's the number one station in town, and two, you can sell a lot of advertising during nine hours of Bears coverage 16 times, 16 weeks out of the year, more with preseason. So it goes back to the old saying, why do people rob banks? That's where the money is. Why are stations going to do all news on FM? Because that's where the money is. 
eventually. Um, we signed on in uh, on July 29th, and uh, our first, you know, they, they measure ratings now uh, on a monthly basis. And just to give you a quick primer on how they ca- calculate radio ratings, Chicago is a market of 8 million people. Uh, this outfit called Arbitron asks 2,000 people to wear a listening device called a portable people meter, and it will detect any radio signal uh, within your range. So those 2,000 people out of 8 million determine what stations are popular and what stations are not popular, and you have to try and be successful within that system. And uh, I believe the final rating point, the final rating for Q101 as an alternative rock station was a 2.3. They got a big nostalgia bump at the end as people tuned in because they knew the station was going off the air. Our first uh, our first uh, rating period as an all-new station, a 0.5. We were very successful in chasing off Q101's audience, <laughs> and that was it. And then after that, we went down to a 0.2, and then we've been slowly building back up. It takes a while as, a, as an all-news outlet on FM uh, to build an audience for two reasons. One, I think people are conditioned to the idea that news and talk are on AM, music is on FM, and that's the way it should be. Uh, second, you have to develop that utility. I mean, one of the things that the reasons why WBBM does so well, they've been on the air with an all-news format since 1968. Every man, woman, and child in Chicago knows traffic and weather on the 8s. You know you go there when... When during the snowstorm, you know you go there when it's slow on the Dan Ryan. You know you go there when a building is on fire because they're the utility. They're the phone company. They're the water department. They're always there. So you have to, our challenge is to, to, to build our own utility that when, when bad things are happening, you also tune to 101.1 FM. There's also a belief that people under the age of 40 and more so as you go down towards 30 and 20, have never listened to AM radio at once in their lives. Or it's just not part of their media consumption. So you put the all-news radio station where the audience is. And I'm pleased to report that we're finally starting to, to, to build up some numbers. You know, the, the days of the .2s and the .3s are gone. We're kind of creeping back to where KQX was at the end of the alternative rock format. So we chased everyone else away. We brought in a new audience ourselves. Yay us. But um, our, our, our best demographics are men 25 to 54. And he, this is what's shocking to me. Men 18 to 34, the alternative rock crowd, the people who listen to B96, the people who listen to Kiss, the people who were not listening to me on WGN a year ago, yet they're listening. The content is there, and it's if you put it there, and if you put it in a place where people are going to see it, eventually you're going to have people come into your store. But with news and information, it takes a while. It takes a while to, to prove to people that you're there, and that you're actually worth their time. And you know, you're, you're going to it maybe another year before we actually are making some serious money. I think we're, we'll we'll probably break even this year, but it could be 2013 or maybe 2014 before, you know, we're starting to roll around in buckets of cash. Hopefully, <laughs> here's hoping. Right. And, and what I'll, I'll just add to those really quick. What we've heard from Dan and Rob is some risk. 
right? Both of these both of these formats with, with Dan doing patch and and Rob with F, with the FM news. These are risks that are being taken in the journalism industry. We have not seen a lot of that. Uh, you know, with WBBM, you know, it's a very good description to call them the utility company. They're there, and it's what they do. News on the eights, traffic, all that good stuff. You know, and the newspapers have not taken those risks quite yet. They're getting there. But, you know, patch and FM news are risks, but that's how journalism is going to move forward. That's how journalism is going to catch up with this more digitally literate society that we're living in now. Uh, and it, that's a great thing. I, I'm very pleased to see those things happening and even more pleased to see them happening right here in, in our backyard. All right. The, you know, we have really just brushed the surface of this. There's enough that we could talk about probably forever, but you don't want to hear that. Uh, I want to open up quickly if there's other questions from the audience. I know we're getting close to the noon class time, so if you do have a class coming up and you need to leave, that's cool. Just, you know, be polite as you walk past everybody else. So, question. Yeah. What's the breakdown? So, the question is about the breakdown that advertisers pay to newspapers and other outlets. I don't know if anyone has any knowledge. You know, just going off some of the numbers that are popping into my head on the fly here, I know that ad revenue to newspapers has fallen in the last 10 years by about anywhere between 30 and 50 percent, depending on the market, and it, a major blow. I mean, you, you used to be able to sell an ad in the New York Times, a full-page ad in the New York Times, for $35,000. You know, that used You know, the problem that newspapers have had, I, I have a, a printout that I just, a new report was just filed that for the first time we're seeing more people visiting what the growth to newspaper websites is going up, which hasn't been happening. But, you know, it's hard for advertisers to, to buy ads at places where there's less people. Right. So as circulations drop, well, I, I don't want to give you more money to see less people. So I think and, that's the, and that's the other number that's key is these huge percentage drops in circulation, which then lead to the percentage drops in ad revenue. So, you know, if, if they're going to make that bounce back, if we are seeing, like the, the stat Troy just mentioned, if we're seeing more people come to the digital versions, be it, you know, maybe an app or the website, whatever it may be, advertisers are going to say, hey, there's people there. We'll go there now. And we may be willing to pay a little bit more than we have in the past because that's where the people are going. Pretty much. It is. Yeah. It's very Dan, much in that Dan or Rob, do you want to come in? Yeah, I think the challenge and the trend we're seeing now is um, media companies finding alternative revenue streams. So, um, you know, things like Groupon have really, you know, had an influence. The Chicago Tribune has its own version of that. We do on um, Patch as well. Um, you know, you see the New York Times and, um, you know, other places like that instituting, sometimes now instituting paywall-type, you know, viewing structures. So it, the challenge is to figure out how to make up the money that you're losing on, you know, the regular paper printed ads. Because I don't think, especially large newspapers, are ever again going to be able to support themselves predominantly on the ads you see in the physical paper. The challenge is to how to harness the online space into making money because right now that's you know, a difficult problem to crack and it hasn't been done, you know. You know, we mentioned earlier, you know, whoever figures that out, you're going to make a lot of money because that's kind of the next challenge in media is how to make significant, you know, revenue off of online content. You know, there's a term that uh, causes people in the radio business to kick themselves, and it's called point-to-point, point, and that means they don't need you anymore. Um, if, you, if you listen to a tape of any radio station in Chicago from 30 years ago, 
listen to the advertisers. Airlines. When was the last time an airline advertised on the radio? They don't need you anymore. You just go to southwest.com, go to americanairlines.com, go to Expedia. You don't need uh, a big voice, uh, a seven-voice jingle group telling you that American Airlines is doing what they do best because they don't need you on TV anymore. They don't need you on radio anymore. Uh, the two advertisers that keep the radio business going are car dealerships and... Uh, that's pretty much it. When, I mean, there was there was a big problem for us when uh, when when the auto industry went into the dumper in uh, 2008 and 2009. Car dealership advertising went down in a big way, and that was bad at WGN. I saw Bill had a Troy. Before we lose too many students, uh, I wonder what advice panelists might give a younger person who's interested in a yeah. career in Germany. Good question. What what should they be doing? My my advice would be start now, start a blog, talk to Dan, work at Patch, uh, get a Twitter account, follow people on Twitter. You don't ha you don't necessarily have to tweet. Just become familiar with that format. I would say if you are planning to, if you're here now studying journalism, or if you're planning to go somewhere else and study journalism, if you don't have Twitter, you know familiarity, or if you're not writing a blog, you're going to be behind the the game. You really are. Uh, you know, keep up with the news. Uh, read news sites daily. Many of you do. I know from talking to my students, a lot of you do. Stay up to date on how things are changing. Know what's happening out there, what's trending. Uh, you know, get involved. And, uh, you know, another thing, if you can, try to incorporate some sort of technology into what you're studying. If you can get, uh, you know, a minor in web design or, uh, you know, I, with my degree from Indiana, um, it's actually a, a hybrid of information technology and journalism. Um, and it was kind of ahead of its time, I think, when I got it. Uh, and now that's really the way to go. You need that technology edge uh, to get you into the business. But start now because you can. You know, back when I, w when I first wanted to get into it, I couldn't just be like, hey, I'm going to publish a newspaper, and my mom would read it, right? <laughs> and that didn't get me much of anywhere, except on the fridge. But, you know, I, but it, now I could have started a blog. I could have gotten on Twitter. So start now, I would say, as soon as you possibly can. Yeah, and I would say two things. The first is learn to do as many different things as you can. Don't think you're going to be a print reporter and work for a newspaper and all you ever have to know how to do is how to write an article. Learn how to take pictures. Learn how to shoot video. Learn how to use social media. You know, all those skills are necessary for, you know, whatever job in the media you have. And the second thing is become a good writer. Kind of really challenge yourself to perfect your writing because that's always... You know, whether, you know, you pursue journalism or not, there's so many career paths that, you know, are dependent upon being able to write well. So I would say, those, you know, those are the two main main things. And, there, I mean, there's no barriers to entry anymore. You know, there's nothing stopping you from being a reporter or being a journalist in some capacity. So, you know, start a blog, you know, develop a Twitter audience, you know, there's no reason why you can't do it. You don't need a job. You don't need a, you know, salary to kind of experiment and try different things. And uh, have an open mind, and not just about uh, about the world around you. You know, take take classes in business and civics and economics, and because the more things you learn, the more things you'll develop an interest in. And good journalism is passionate journalism, where the journalist 
has an interest and really cares and is able to convey to you why you should care about something. And there is always, there's always a joke in journalism that uh, the, the covering city council meetings or covering school board meetings is the lowest rung. No, it's not. For, for the people who are, whose lives are governed by decisions made by a government agency or a school board, that's extraordinarily important. So why not have someone covering those things who really, A, has a great deal of knowledge of how budgets work and how uh, property taxes are levied? Why not have someone who really is interested in that kind of thing? Because in turn, you as the reader or the listener will pick up on that and then you'll, really, you'll, you'll understand, okay, this is important. This is, and, and the journalist will explain why in easy to understand terms. And, you, and that's another thing you don't really get. So take a lot, take a lot of classes that are maybe outside of your, your realm because you never know what, what, might, uh, what might pique your interest. And be completely open to, you know, wherever your career might take you. I mean, my job didn't exist five years ago, and 15 years ago it wasn't even, you know, nobody even had a faintest idea that, you know, jobs like this would exist. And by the time, you know, you guys enter the workforce, there'll be a whole other set of, you know, new jobs that we never knew would be there either. So, you know, to me it's just a really exciting time to be in journalism, so I wouldn't want anyone to you know, come away with this fearing the, you know, future of careers in media because I think we're just at the cusp of, you know, a real revolution in how, you know, people get their news. And it's an exciting time, you know, to be in this industry. Okay. So, okay, one more question. quality of mainstream journalism and what they ignore. Okay. Cliff's Notes answers. We'll go fast. <laughs> um, I'm glad that they're being... I'm, I love the fact that legacy organizations are being challenged to rethink what they cover and how they cover it and why they cover it, and I think that's that's a good thing. Um, I, hate, I, I always shy away from the term like mainstream media because it has this connotation of... Um, you know, bias or, you know, they're doing something wrong. And in a lot of cases, that might be true. But I don't think there's any real mainstream media anymore. And I think as years go on, that term will be kind of less descriptive because, you know, there'll be so many different outlets to get your news from. You know, it'll be so fragmented that, you know, the idea that one company has a stronghold on the message that's out there will really start to break down. And I think in the end, that's a, that's a positive thing. Cable news is stupid. Don't watch it. <laughs> yeah. no, it is. I mean, it's awful. It is. That was a clip notion. That was a clip. That was good. Uh, and I would just say the internet has become the great equalizer. You know, there is really no mainstream media. If someone sees a gap, if they say, you know, CNN or Fox News isn't covering this, or if they're not tre treating it well, that person can start a blog. That person could start a video site. You know, it's become the great equalizer. So that that's what's really pretty cool about it. I, I think we're going to wrap it up there. I just, on behalf of the library and the college, I want to thank these guys for taking their time to come out. And uh, they're busy all day, again reporting for all of us. Uh, so it, it's great that they volunteer their time to do this. So thank you. So maybe a round of applause. For thank you. And thank you for all of you for attending. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. 
For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.